we're talking about this morning. I've titled the message, Forgiven and Forgiving Disciples. And by forgiving disciples, I mean that as disciples, we are to be forgiving people. So we are forgiven and forgiving disciples. Luke chapter 17. Interesting chapter as we uh, move through the book of Luke. Uh, and, and not just chapter 17, but sort of uh, the, the text all around this chapter there is uh, there's there's a big question amongst biblical scholars and commentators. How does all this fit into the narrative of Luke? Uh, you 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 recall over the last couple of weeks, you've been hearing a lot about Jesus's interaction with the Pharisees, um, and and as we get into chapter 17, there's a there's a shift away from that conversation and back towards his disciples as he's seeking to encourage them and to instruct them. But a lot, of, a lot of commentators will look at this chapter and say, not sure what Luke's doing here, not sure if there's a, a common thread here. It just seems like maybe Luke remembered lots of different specific but unrelated things that Jesus said to his disciples and just sort of decided to throw them all together into a bucket right here and say, just, oh yeah, read this in the middle of my narrative. Um, I don't know that I agree with that. I can understand why they would say that, because it, it can feel a little disconnected with some of the different uh, movements. Remember, we've talked about uh, bouncing ping-pong balls throughout our study of Luke. Sometimes the, that following that ball, you know there's a trajectory, but it can sure feel like it's going this way, that way, this way, that way. You get a little bit of that in chapter 17 as well. Uh, but we've been talking about, because Jesus has been talking about, the kingdom of God. And I think that is certainly continuing on. Jesus is trying to get his disciples and ultimately all who are hearing his teaching to understand that the kingdom of God has arrived in his coming. And this is what it looks like. This is what the kingdom of God is. And, and specifically, as far as application to his disciples, this is what it means to be citizens of the kingdom. This is how kingdom living looks. That's definitely what is happening here. So we're talking about kingdom-minded discipleship. What does a transformed person look like? Okay? But I want to focus amidst those bouncing ping-pong balls of chapter 17 on a particular thread that I do see running through at least a, a large portion of it. And it's, it's this concept of forgiveness. Jesus is going to be talking about forgiveness. I had Libby read the Lord's Prayer this morning for us, and then we sang the Lord's Prayer. Uh, there's a lot of similarity between what Jesus prays for in the Lord's Prayer and what he's instructing his disciples to, 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 to seek and to live like throughout chapter 17. And certainly forgiveness is one of the key concepts that we see there. Why is it important of all the different bouncing balls that I could have selected in chapter 17, and there are several, why did I focus on forgiveness? Because uh, I think the concept of forgiveness has really fallen on hard times in our day and age, right? We live in a, a cancel culture, right? We live in a culture that's so divided and vitriolic and where somebody makes a, a mistake, somebody commits a sin, and I'm not, I'm not downplaying the sins that are committed, but boy, can we jump on them, right? 
And there's, some, there's, there's certainly some level of appropriateness in pointing out sin and calling people to turn from their sin, to recognize it, to repent from it, but not apart from extending the opportunity of forgiveness. But we're not very keen on that. And I, I'm, I fear that that lack of forgiveness in culture is also revealing itself in the church even amongst people who are people of the gospel who 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 stake our all on this idea that we have been forgiven by god are we good forgivers do we forgive others as god has forgiven us i think we have some some things to be challenged on and i think that's what jesus will do for us here this morning so we're going to talk about for being forgiven and forgiving disciples following jesus's words primarily in chapter 17 verses 1 through 19 let me pray and then we'll begin to discuss the text father i I just thank you again for your word and the opportunity to read it together in community we thank you lord that your holy spirit is present in us and among us to guide us into truth so lord as i read this text out loud i pray lord that it's your spirit that that causes our ears to hear and our hearts to receive Father, we're, we're, we're talking about what it means to be transformed people, so Father, transform us. As we've been transformed by the gospel, the death of Christ and his resurrection, Lord, continue to transform us by your word to make us more like Christ. Specifically this morning, teach us what it means to know and to give forgiveness. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 17. Here's the first point. I'm looking at verses 1 and 2. The first point this morning is transformed people don't cause others to spiritually stumble. Don't cause others to spiritually stumble. So as we're talking about forgiveness, I think it's interesting to start here and say this. Forgiveness isn't really needed if we're not sinning against one another in the first place, right? Transform people don't cause others to spiritually stumble. Look at verse 1. Jesus said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Now, I actually don't love the way that our ESV version, uh, the translators handle these verses. When you look in verse 1 and he says, temptations to sin are sure to come, that phrase temptations to sin is one word in the original Greek and that word is scandalon. Scandalon, sounds like scandal, right? Uh, That word literally means stumbling block. So what Jesus is saying here is stumbling blocks are sure to come. And then you see at the end of verse 2, he says, he says woe is you if, if you if you cause these things to happen and cause one of these little ones to sin. The word sin at the end of verse 2 is also in Greek, that same word, scandalon, meaning to stumble. So he's literally saying, it's better to be thrown into the sea and to drown than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. All right. Now, I, I bring that up as important Because I think in the translation here that we have in English where it says temptations to sin, I think that conveys too narrow a meaning 
of what Jesus is actually trying to say here. Being a stumbling block can certainly include tempting other people to sin, but it's more than just that. To be a stumbling block also means, and I think more specifically means, to cause spiritual damage. To cause spiritual harm to another person. So yes, we can cause spiritual harm by tempting people to sin, but we can also cause spiritual harm by our careless words, or by gossip, or by malicious intent towards someone, or by neglecting someone, or through even the collateral damage of of our own sin and its effect on other people's lives, right? Spiritual harm, spiritual damage, scandalone. And Jesus is saying, those things are sure to happen, but woe to the one through who they happen. We've heard a lot of of, uh, public examples of spiritual abuse lately. And so I think there's something important here for us to to learn and to understand uh, and to be challenged on about those kinds of abuses. Jesus has just been talking to the Pharisees quite a bit leading up into chapter 17. And he's, 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 he's pretty pointed in his conversations with them. There's, there's, some, there's some rebuke and there's some correction. Uh, there's some harsh words being given here because the Pharisees of Jesus' day were guilty of all kinds of spiritual abuses against the people and for all kinds of reasons, one of which was their assistance upon placing these burdensome rules on them these burdensome restrictions on the people that prevented the people from experiencing the freedom and the joy of truly worshiping God, abundantly worshiping God. These Pharisees were often very greedy men. They were harsh men whom Jesus regularly accused of being like vipers and like whitewashed tombs, men who were out for selfish gain, causing spiritual harm causing spiritual death in Israel. Now, in our own day, we're sadly all too accustomed to seeing and hearing about church leaders who are like that. People who cause abuse, who abuse their parishioners in various and awful ways, same kinds of ways, harsh treatment, greedy, out for selfish gain, using their power, uh, their positions of authority in ways to cause great spiritual harm. And we don't just see that in church leadership. We see spousal abuse. We see racially motivated abuses because what? Ungodly people take scripture and they twist it in order to justify their sin, to justify their, their, their selfish desires. We see spiritual harm caused by parents who subject their children to these overbearing forms of legalism and and place unattainable performance standards on their kids that crush their young spirits and often turn them away from the Lord. I think all of that is what Jesus has in mind here when he's saying these stumbling blocks are sure to come. These are stumbling blocks. They're all stumbling blocks. 
that trip people up and that trap people. And I mentioned before, there's also the, just the collateral damage of our own sin that causes spiritual harm in the lives of others. If I can be a little pressing on this point, your pornography habit is not just a, an individual sin between you and God. It's slowly destroying your marriage. Even if you're not married yet. It is causing great spiritual harm to the members of your family. Both present and future. Or maybe addictions that have enslaved you. That's not just an issue between you and God. It, 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 it wreaks great spiritual harm on those around you who you're supposed to love because you're robbing them away from maybe the material provisions that you should be providing for them. That's going to fund your habit. Or you're robbing them from the time that, that they need from you because that's going to hide out with your habit. Or your love of money, like we talked about last Sunday. It's not just an idol in your own life. Your, your love for money, your love for your, your pursuit of your, your career ambitions, that, that is an idol upon which, an altar of an idol upon which you're sacrificing your loved ones. Just to attain and retain your status and your possessions, you're sacrificing loved ones. Stumbling blocks. I think it's important for us to have a broad view of what Jesus has in mind here when he's talking about stumbling blocks. And he says, they are sure to come. Why? Because we live in a, we live in a sinful world. We're full of sinful people. Brokenness and fallenness. They are sure to come. They're going to come. But, he says, woe to the one from whom they come. Woe is a is a, is a strong word of, of judgment and warning. And I think what he's saying is, these things are sure to come because the world is full of this kind of sin and brokenness, but not my disciples. Not my disciples. Not my people. There will be judgment on those through whom this comes, which is to say, those are not my people. And then he says here, it would be better for a millstone to be tied around your neck and thrown into the sea to drown than to cause stumbling for one of these little ones. By the way, little ones here, don't think children. I know there's another passage in where Jesus talks specifically about children and says, let the little ones come to me. But he's not saying that here. I think he's talking about his sheep, his, his people, his little ones. <clears throat> But he's saying, look, it would be more merciful for you to experience a quick death now than the judgment that's coming if you're the one who brings this kind of stumbling to my people. Woe. Strong warning of judgment. There's two things that I want to highlight before we move on from that opening um, statement of warning. The first thing is this, that if you are an abuser or you are the abused. 
know this, God sees it. I think that's one thing Jesus is making very clear here. God sees it. And he will judge it if you're the stumbling block. But he also will punish it and bring justice if you're the victim. God sees it. So Jesus is saying, look, transformed people don't do that. Transformed people don't do that. Others will, but not my people. But that leads us into then this discussion about forgiveness. What about when it does happen? When those kinds of stumbling blocks are thrown your way. When you are sinned against. Let's talk about this topic of forgiveness. Here's the second point of my message this morning. Transformed people forgive others who sin against them. Transformed people forgive others who sin against them. Verse 3. Jesus says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Transform people, forgive others who sin against them. Now, I think it, it may be helpful here to, to just to pause for a minute and consider what does it mean to forgive? You must forgive the one who turns to you and says, I repent for sinning against you. What does it mean to forgive? Forgiveness means this. It means to cancel a debt. When they sin against you, they are in debt now to you, right? They, they sort of owe you something. They've robbed from you. To forgive them is to say, debt paid. Cancel the debt. It means stop feeling angry. Stop feeling resentful towards someone for a offense or a flaw or a mistake. It's not just canceling the debt. It's paid. It's, it's I no longer hold that over you. I don't feel angry anymore over that. It means I let go of the grip that that hurt has held on me and no longer hold that hurt over the head of the person that I've forgiven. Can you, can you hear that? Because that's not just a, diff- a dictionary definition that you just sort of need to mentally understand. That's, that's, that's got to sink into our hearts. I cancel that debt. I no longer hold that hurt, and I no longer hold it over the head of the one who hurt me. We need to hear that. That's what it means to forgive. And Jesus is calling us to do that. What does he say to do when someone sins against you? He first says, you rebuke them, right? Rebuke them. What does that mean? Well, listen, rebuke is not a soft word. Rebuke means that you tell someone something like it really is. Telling it to them straight. The definition of the word entails a sharp reprimand. It entails a strong criticism of their behavior. He's not telling you, look, sugarcoat the offense. Oh, no big deal. Rebuke them. Tell them truthfully what it is that they've done. 
and why it is that that's sinful and harmful, how it has hurt you. Sinners need to be brought face to face with the reality of their, the consequences of their actions and the harm that they've caused to other people. So rebuke them means tell them. And yet, we speak the truth in love, don't we? Ephesians 4.15 tells us that. Our goal should be to see this person repent. Not just have a burden placed on them, but turn. Repent and to be reconciled both to God and to us. Jesus talks about this, this idea of, of rebuking brothers and sisters who have sinned against us and what the goal is in Matthew 18. And he says, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault. That's rebuking them between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. That's the goal. Gain them back. Reconciliation between God and you. And if that happens and your offender repents, again, verse 3 and 4 here in Luke 17 If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. It's interesting that here Jesus addresses one of the big questions that we have about forgiveness. How many times do I have to forgive somebody? How many times? They, they continually sin against me. What is the requirement here? And you know what Jesus' answer is? Essentially, he says, there's no limit. There's no limit. Seven times in a day doesn't mean that you get to stop forgiving at the eighth occurrence. That's not what that means. What's Jesus doing here? He's employing an idiom of sorts. That means just keep going. Matthew's account of this conversation makes that fact even more clear. Also in Matthew 18, it says, Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Again, you keep going. There's no limit. Can we pause on that for a moment? Are you carrying bitterness or resentment towards someone this morning because you have been unable or unwilling to forgive them? Are you carrying that? Unable or unwilling to forgive? I I fear that there are many people in the church whose spiritual growth has been stifled. They're stuck. In fact, most of the time when you're stuck, you slip backwards for this very reason. Unable and unwilling to forgive. If you can't forgive, There is a disconnect in your understanding of the gospel. If you can't forgive, your discipleship is in question. Forgiveness is a hallmark of the Christian life. Transform people, forgive others who sin against them. 
And listen, you might be spiritually sick, as I said before, stuck and slipping backwards. You might be physically sick because you've been carrying and holding on to this kind of resentment and bitterness. You're unable and unwilling to forgive. You need to let go. You need to let go. Pay attention to yourselves, he says. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Important words. Now before we move on, though, we've got to address maybe the other big question in the room. Some of you might be asking, what if my offender doesn't repent? Jesus says, if they repent, forgive them. What if they don't? Must I still forgive? That's a good question. It's an important question because it's an incredibly practical question. That happens all the time, right? That happens all the time. In fact, some of, some of you, if you're carrying that bitterness and resentment and you're feeling stuck, it may be in part because that other person has not repented. They have not asked you for forgiveness. So what must you do? Jesus doesn't receive that question here, so he doesn't answer that question in Luke 17, but I think he does answer the question, and we looked at it earlier when we were in Luke chapter 6. And the answer simply is this, I think, yes, you must still forgive them. I say that because, again, Luke 6, he says this. This is Luke 6, verse 27 and 28. He says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who abuse you. There's a pastor that I know out in Boston. His name's Eric Raymond. He says this about loving our enemies. He said, people who curse and abuse you, like Jesus has talked about in Luke 6, they don't stop being your enemies just because you bless them, right? Jesus says, bless your enemies. They don't stop being your enemies just because you bless them. But he says, that's what makes Jesus' command so powerful. They haven't asked for our forgiveness. Perhaps they don't think they have to ask for our forgiveness. They're content being our enemy. They're content making life difficult for us. But as John Piper has said, we are to bless them and that blessing means that our part, our part of the inward forgiveness has happened. Our part. The opposite of forgiveness is to hold a grudge, but blessing is the opposite of holding a grudge, so blessing is a kind of forgiving. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. Consider the words of Jesus on the cross. What did he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's a powerful example for us. They were not repentant in what they were doing. They didn't even know that they needed to be, right? But what does Jesus do? He extends forgiveness. He prays for their forgiveness, the people who did him harm. So do you have to forgive those that have not asked for your forgiveness, not repented? 
I think on your side of it, yes. Bless those who curse you. Love your enemies. And one last note, it's important to recognize this. Please don't mishear me when I talk about this kind of forgiveness. There is a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Okay? The goal of forgiveness, the goal of rebuking a brother or sister who has sinned against you is that there is reconciliation. They, are, they repent, they're restored to God, they're restored to us in relationship. But that that reconciliation is an outflow of forgiveness. It's not the same thing. So I can forgive somebody who hasn't asked for it, and if there is no reconciliation, it, that means I don't have to pretend like it didn't happen. I don't have to engage with them like they're a safe space for me. They may not be a safe space. There may not be reconciliation. Jesus is not calling us to continually uh, throw sin under the rug. He's, he's telling us to give opportunity for that repentance. To forgive, but reconciliation is a miracle that God must bring about that goes above and beyond the forgiveness that we must give. Does that make sense? It's not the same thing. Our part is to forgive. We must renounce revenge and we've got to entrust ourselves to God and then do good even in return for evil. That's our part and we can do that whether our offender repents or not, whether they admit their sin or not. Again, one great miracle has already happened in us. God has set us free from sin and given us the freedom to forgive others. Uh, we're not responsible for the miracle of repentance in the other person. That's God's prerogative. Which, by the way, I think is what Jesus is getting at here in verse 5. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. If, if that's a, a direct response to Jesus just telling them to forgive, unlimited forgiveness, the people that have sinned against them, increase our faith would be an appropriate response. In other words, that's really difficult to do maybe that's what you're feeling right now as i've been talking for the last several minutes and you're going i i don't know if i can do this increase my faith what does jesus say if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed you could say to this mulberry tree be uprooted and plant it in the sea and it would obey you that that verse is often used out of context to you know, tell you that if you just had enough faith, you could move mountains, right? And how many of, your, how many of you have had your faith uh, weakened because you think, I'm asking for this big mountain to be moved and it's not moving. And, and you, you think, if I just had more faith, I just had more faith. I, I think in the context of what's being said here, we should read it like this. The apostles are saying, we need more faith because what you just asked us to do is impossible. And so Jesus says, a little faith. Trust the Lord, he does the impossible. It is impossible for a tree to be uprooted and planted in the ocean, but God can do it because with God, all things are possible. If you don't think you can forgive like this, trust God. God will do the impossible in you. I think that's what he means. Now that leads us to the next section of Luke 17. Third point, transform people, serve and obey God simply because he's worthy. 
This is going to be a short point. Let me just read it and give you a quick explanation. Verse 7, Jesus says, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's coming from the field, Come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. This is kind of a harsh uh, saying here. And, and it's been somewhat softened by the use of the word servant here. But I think, I think in, the, in their hearing, they're hearing the word slave. And he's saying to them, if you have a slave and they've been working out in the field, and they come in at the end of the workday, are you going to tell them, hey, take, take your shoes off, get some water, sit down, relax, eat some food? No, a slave is going to be told, hey, thanks for, not even thanks, sorry, because he said you won't say thanks, right? You've been working out in the field all day. Welcome back inside. It's time to make my dinner. And the picture there is that there's no, there's, there's no room there for anything other than a recognition that the master has this position, the slave has this position, and the slave simply obeys the master because he's the master. Now, it's a crude analogy to be used in our relationship with God. And I don't think Jesus is trying to make a direct correlation here, but he's trying to show us something, that there are expectations that are simply given by authority, that when you perform those things, it's not like you're going to be treated like you went above and beyond. Like, oh, thanks for going the extra mile. It was, it's going to be like, yes, you did that because that's what you were expected to do. And in context here of forgiveness, I think that's the application that we ought to take. We're called to forgive, right? We're, we're told to, to trust God to do the impossible in us to do that. But at the same time, you got to recognize there's a full expectation of God. That's what you do. Because God has said so. Because this is who God is, and this is what God expects of his servants, his disciples. Forgiveness, in other words, is not an option. It's obedience. And obedience is given to God without an expectation of thank you. (laughs) It's just expected. Transform people, serve, and obey God simply because he's worthy. But in saying that, we also have to recognize that his expectation is rooted not just in a demand for obedience, but it's rooted ultimately in the grace that he has given to us. And that's the last point this morning. Transform people, never forget Jesus' saving grace. We're called to forgive others. We're expected to forgive others. But our motivation is that we have received grace. Verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance. 
and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. This is not a parable. This is something that Luke records as actually having happened. And the big picture point of this scene is that they're on their way to Jerusalem. And what we've been seeing all along is that the Jews have, by and large, been rejecting Christ. They've been rejecting his message of, as the Messiah. And he's been saying all along that this message is going to go forth beyond them, out to the world. And so we're seeing an example of that yet again, a reminder of that yet again. It's the Samaritan. It's the, it's the outsider who sees and understands the salvation that he's given, been given from Jesus. He's the one who acknowledges Jesus. That's the big picture point of the scene here. But I think it's an important part of our discussion on forgiveness as well. Because what do we see here? All ten of the lepers received a physical healing, but only one of them received a spiritual healing. That deeper, eternal healing, Jesus says, is evidenced by his faith. And that, according to Jesus, is what made him well. His faith. His acknowledgement that Jesus alone was the one who could cleanse him, who could save him. And his willingness to come at the feet of Jesus in worship and praise and thanksgiving when the other ones just took the, the blessing and moved on. True forgiveness comes from a place of spiritual healing if you want to have the faith to be able to forgive, you have to understand the forgiveness that you've been given. True forgiveness comes from a place of spiritual healing, and you can forgive others when you understand and recognize how much you have been forgiven. Just like this leper. Oh, what a grace-filled salvation we have in Jesus. Christians, we, we, we talk about this so much. We've got to keep coming back to the gospel. We've got to keep our eyes fixed on Christ. In Christ, every single sin of yours has been washed away. Every single sin of mine has been washed away. The certificate of debt that hung over our heads has been completely canceled. Jesus, as it were, has written in his own blood on that certificate, paid in full. There remains now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 1. 
we stand forgiven at the cross. That's who you are, Christian. That's what Christ has done for you. So when you forgive others then, out of an outflow of your understanding of the forgiveness that you've received, you are magnifying the power of the gospel. Cancel culture does the exact opposite of that. It just affirms the, 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 the ruthlessness of the world. Forgiveness magnifies the power of the gospel. We're declaring that there is something better. We're declaring that there is something more important than me and my, my rights and my feelings in this world. We're declaring the worth of Christ. And we're declaring the worth of his commands. We're showing the power of a transformed life. What the Holy Spirit accomplishes in those who put their trust and faith in Christ. And how great is it to extend to others out of love the same forgiveness that's been extended to us. All glory to God. All glory to God. And may that be the model and the motivation for our forgiveness. Look to Jesus. Let it go. I pray for you. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you that you came. You sent your son to us, God in the flesh, to speak to us, to reveal your heart, to show us what it means to be kingdom-minded and to receive us into that kingdom through his sacrificial death on our behalf. So Father, if we are transformed people this morning, then I pray you'll help us to live in light of that transformation, demonstrate that transformation by helping us to forgive, by helping us to be a people who are seeking after reconciliation with God and with others by the power of the gospel because we know that that power has reconciled us to you. Burn that truth deep into our, our hearts this morning so that we can love people as you have loved us. Lord, I pray that you protect anyone in this room and anyone who might be hearing me this morning. Protect them from the, the harm and the deception that, that, uh, that, that sin can cause. I, I pray that you would free them from those bonds. I pray that they see that there is a way forward, a hopeful way forward through the shed blood and the resurrection of Christ. Give us freedom and forgiveness. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.